I knew if I would fail, I could always go back to a W2. But if I didn't try, I, I think I would be kicking myself in the long run. This is the Yield Coach Show, episode 35. I'm your host, Ian Brown. Every episode, we bring you dynamic entrepreneurs, real estate investors, and thought leaders ready to open up, share their story, the good, the bad, the ugly, so you can learn lessons, gain advantages, and accelerate your own success. Very excited about today's guest. We have Mr. Sam Bates with us, and Sam is the founder and CEO of Bates Capital Group. Got into this real estate investing world 14 years ago, and he has over 1,000 multifamily units in Texas and in the Southeast, and they have over 1,000 units in the development pipeline. They have an impressive average IRR of 61% on all their full cycle deals. Excited to chat with Sam. Sam, welcome. Thank you, Ian. It's a pleasure to be here and I look forward to talking to you and your listeners. Yeah, you know, you got into real estate at potentially the very best year possible. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I think you're already aware of that. I saw that 09 and um, I was like, damn. If I, you know, that's like the, I mean, some might say, okay, you get maybe slightly more stuff and, and special assets and bankruptcy and foreclosure a couple of years later. But man, um, I know because my first personal purchase, just a residence was in the, I think spring of 07. I think that was like the peak in my neighborhood. I got this condo in Jacksonville and I was the highest comp in the neighborhood. I was a school teacher baby on the way. I just needed a house. And <laughs> that was oh, like the high water benchmark comp that everything fell off of in this, in oh, this God. condominium community for years. But had I started in 09, I'd, I'd really be a wizard. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was definitely a lot of luck. And in hindsight, you can say that was the perfect time. But when I jumped into it, there was a ton of trepidation. Financing was rough. Um, I was an investment analyst at UBS. So, well, at before grad school, so I saw the stock market crash. Um, so there's a lot of trepidation and just angst in all the markets. And, um, but it, it was the perfect time to get in and kind of get my feet wet and start. I was investing in as a limited partner. And also I invested in a lot of single family apartments for myself but it was a good stepping stone to do the multifamily de developments or acquisitions that we've been doing for seven or eight years now. And I saw, and, you know, I was just reading, reading up on you before the show, going through your website. And it sounds like just looking at your face on screen, you don't have to tell me your precise age, but I think we're probably of a similar demographic. And given the time you've been doing this, um, I would say it was probably a courageous leap to leave your W2 job when you did it. Um, you know, you're not, you're not an old and gray Gandalf investor, you know, that maybe just started doing this on his own a few years ago. So take us back to a time when you were not Sam Bates of Bates Capital Group. You were, you know, you were an employee. What were you up to? What led to the decision to depart? Do you have any recommendations for those that are maybe sitting at their desk, maybe listening to this while they work their virtual jobs? And um, not that they're not real jobs, remote jobs and, uh, and considering what they're going to do next. Yeah, I I spent a long time going through that process, so I feel like I could pontificate hours upon hours about leaving a W-2, but um, like I said, I was an investment analyst at UBS for a few years, and then I went back and got my master's, the market crashed, so 
I transitioned into consulting and they put me in a department that I didn't even know what it was and understood initially. Um, and it was sales and use tax. And I spent literally 10 years of my career doing that, but that was the really the stepping stone or the diving board to just get me off investing in real estate. So I was investing quote unquote with a side hustle or passively for, I don't know, five years, six years. Um, and then, well, I guess the side job was that. And then, um, I, I didn't leave my full-time job until end of 17. And I was at an energy company for five years at that point. And we had went through three acquisitions and, or we were sold three times in six months. And I was reporting to the wow. CFO that worked in the Netherlands. And literally in three months, we had talked, met, texted, phone calls, less than five minutes. So I knew it was time to move on. And at that time, we had had a few developments underway and I knew if we needed to grow and scale, I couldn't do both. So mm -hmm. it was a, a lot of, honestly, it was a lot of being ready, but keep aiming and aiming and aiming and not firing. Mm -hmm. And, um, but I think surround yourself by, I, I love how the internet's created podcasts and social media has all these groups that you can connect with because surrounding yourself with people that have done it in the past and you can see that they've been successful in it is a huge advantage because you know you can do it and i i would talk to my parents back in 08 10 12 um about doing it my dad was a uh self-employed i talked to my grandpa he owned his business for 50 60 years they all said it was it was too um risky to do that and to leave your w2 and at times it's scary, but I think a lot of self-reflection, self-growth, self-development helped me get to that point where I was ready to jump off. And I knew if I would fail, I could always go back to a W-2. But if I didn't try, I, I think I would be kicking myself in the long run. That's interesting. Your um, your dad and grandpa, you know, being entrepreneurial, at least in some yeah. way, I mean, self-employed people are generally entrepreneurial as well, uh, both recommending that you stick with the W-2. So uh, that would be tough. I never had that headwind. Um, my parents were educators and like really into, they didn't like applaud degrees, but we kind of had this implied, you need to get advanced education. And that's what took me to law school and appraisal and brokerage and all these things. I started credential stacking. Um, and what I didn't realize I was doing is I was really just a uh, student debt stacking. <laughs> um, <laughs> Yeah, that's exactly. Yeah. Um, both my parents are teachers. My grandpa, I feel like when I was a baby, I knew I was going to college and probably get my master's or doctorate. And to them, it was very important to get an education and have that safe, secure job. And maybe in 40 years ago, that was the right path to go. But I think now it's definitely not. Yeah, I think that you mentioned earlier, just the resources that you can find on podcasts online some paid some unpaid i've done i've done some paid programs i've done plenty of freebies um i would actually say there's so much out there that and i think you're gonna know where i'm going with this there's so much content out there now that it can have like the paralysis of analysis like reverse effect and um you don't want to go into something with insufficient information 
But for those of us that like to be prepared, and I don't necessarily fall totally on that spectrum. I do. I tend to move on like that. I think the Marines make decisions on like 70%, but you know, I, I tend to just go. However, for those that want to be more prepared, they're in their W2 and they're reading and they're pod and they're listening to podcasts and they're watching YouTubes. You might not, you're never going to feel a hundred percent. So at some yeah. point you have to kind of get the experience, I would call it the experiential learning, you know, the school of hard knocks and hopefully you're not knocked too hard, but, um, even if you don't make money on your first deal, um, as long as you can survive it and learn, then there's education that's irreplaceable. Um, so sounds like you were doing this as a side hustle in 09. Um, what were you buying? I know it's different now and what you've been doing the past couple of years. What were you what were you buying back then? Um, the what were your first couple uh side hustle investments? The first couple of side hustle investments were actually limited partner um limited mm. partner investments in multifamily deals. And quite frankly, they didn't go well, um, mm. especially in the time where we bought. Um, we should have significantly done better than we did. But it was great because during that time, I concurrently started investing in single family homes in DFW. I didn't have the amount of capital to buy multifamily at that time or honestly, the knowledge base to do it. Mm -hmm. So I started buying single family homes and I got bruised and kicked around almost on every investment there was mistakes made but real estate's forgiving especially buying it at that time um it was it was a great learning lesson plus a great way to make money um doing a side hustle and by the time i guess i'd bought 20-ish or so single family homes and i realized you couldn't scale and you couldn't grow like you could with multifamily. So that's when I started to look in the multifamily direction. Mm -hmm. And now probably what you've realized is you, um, it wasn't a money issue back then. It was just a knowledge issue because once you kind of, once you figure out some techniques like JVs and syndication, you realize, okay, if I have investors or deals or both, you know, you can kind of get away with one or the other, but if you have both, you're, you're really, on fire. And um, that's probably what took me even until almost like age 40. And I was like, you know, I would see deals, you know, I was, I'm still a certified general appraiser. I've had a good eye for, for margin, for upside, for highest and best use. If I have a superpower, it's probably vision and just kind of catching some upside that people don't all see. And, um, but I passed on, like I passed on so much or I would broker it, or I just, Tell someone else, hey, you should go buy this. And the whole time, I never put two and two together that it was just I needed to focus on how I was going to fund the opportunity. And it sounds stupid as I sit here and say it now, but it just never crossed my mind that like Ian Brown could go out there and get enough capital or a partner with capital to get these things done. It just seemed like beyond me. And then, um, and then you see these guys, you know, our age or younger, stacking up, you know half a billion dollars under management and, you know, good systems. And you're like, okay, it, it it's, it's just a mindset thing. So it's like a, just a limiting belief. Yeah, exactly. And that was my problem was the limiting beliefs I had. And that's why I was talking about self-education, I think is so important and not just education around real estate, but whatever your weakness is, educating yourself around that. Like mine was, around competence and going to investors and asking to raise money. And I, I thought it was 
me or them giving me a favor. And then I finally realized I'm giving them an opportunity to invest in an asset that is backed by something real. It's going to provide diverse, definitely diversification from the stock market, but also it's going to probably provide better returns or safer returns than what the market provides. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting because you said um, you got, I won't say burned, but you said the first LP deals that you did as an investor didn't go well. Um, which is now that I kind of ponder on that, what didn't work, you know, kind of, you have a totally different mindset now and and different skill set. If you could go back to yourself as an LP in 2009 or 10, or some of those first, um, side hustle deals. And for the audience, if you're an LP investor, you're 100% insulated and passive. Um, and so you do not have any control rights. So you just quite literally invest with an operator uh, for an agreed upon, usually a preferred return plus some backend participation on the upside. But going back to Sam, if you took, you know, it didn't go well, you said so. And that was a time when people could pick up deals like by the pound, nice and nice and cheap. What what have you learned? What was the problem back then? I think the biggest, there were a few issues, but betting the sponsor, um, like one I vetted or invested with, he had been in the business for 20 years, but the property bought that I invested in was a little bit outside of his normal um, strike zone. And the property was rougher than what he anticipated and what I think all of the investors anticipated because it was in a good sub-market of Dallas, but um, that specific pocket was riddled with gangs and some other things. And it was hard for him to turn that around um, another deal I invested in with a guy who had had a great career, uh, engineering career, but it was his first multifamily deal. So that was a little eye opening. And then the last one, it was actually an apartment or sorry, a hotel and it was a hotel development. Um, and it was by a group that had took a company public. So it was, you think all the pieces of the puzzle are great, but we ended up in litigation. So um, I think just betting them better and asking a lot more questions than what I did. I I knew I didn't want to invest in the stock market. I got burned in it. I'd seen family, I'd seen past clients get burned. So I thought real estate would be the best avenue. And I kind of went in eyes wide shut and just didn't <laughs> didn't maybe bet the deal and the sponsors as well as I should have. Yeah, that was an interesting movie too, Eyes Wide Shut. <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, but yeah, no, I'm glad you shared that because, you know, a little vulnerability there, a little bit of um, almost like willful, willful ignorance. It's not like you, you couldn't have asked these questions. I think a lot of times you're like, it's it can be awkward it's slightly confrontational um to really vet your sponsors but no obviously you've learned a lot since then and now you are the sponsor um which i think is cool as you talk to investors you can say here is exactly what i did not do and what i got wrong on these on these deals this apartment this hotel um no i think that's great all right so you go from an lp let's talk about a little bit more about like how you evolved as an investor so Clearly at some point, you know, you kind of started to grow up for those that aren't watching. I did a little air quotes there because you kind of, you have this momentum in investing where a lot of people start, not everyone, but a lot of people start with lower unit counts. I'm using a multifamily example because Sam's concentration is multifamily, but, and you kind of graduate up and then 
the lending profile changes, the investor profile changes, um, asset management versus property management comes into play. And so you have, you know, you might need a construction team just to do turns if it's a, if it's a bigger project. So let's kind of talk about the evolution, um, kind of what you started to buy and why some of the, you know, thought process behind it. Yeah. Um, I won't say it was luck, but I think there was a lot of pieces of the puzzle that came together. Like I started to look at small multifamily deals for myself. And then during that time, I started talking to a guy who I used to work with at a consulting firm and he was doing the same thing. And we decided to come together and we were still in our twenties and most of the brokers didn't take us seriously. <laughs> and after a couple of years of striking out, we were like, we got to do something different. So he knew a guy who built homes for 15, 20 years at that point. We asked him if he could build us an apartment. Um, so we actually started in development and we built a basically a multi-use um, retail strip center and an apartment in our first development. Um, huh. it, was on, it was on the smaller side, but it, I think knowing that we were able to raise the money, we were able to go through the entitlement process, the zoning process, just everything that's, I, I think development's significantly more complex than acquisitions and being able to do that and be successful in it. I think that launched us internally with our investor base and just was able to um, give us the ammunition to move forward. But um, we've kind of, went all over in terms of size. Like after that, we bought some smaller deals. And I mean, the biggest deal we've bought is 175 units. And then we're building right now a 257 unit property. So um, it's just definitely evolved over time, but also we're building an 81 unit property now. So the the size doesn't necessarily matter. It's just if if the economics look good, if the market looks good, if we can provide the investors a great return, then we'll move forward with it. So that's interesting. I'll circle back on a couple of things. So you're looking at small multifamily, a consultant friend of yours is doing the same thing. You decide to join forces early on, um, which is somewhat unique. A lot of people are like mavericks till they die or they mm -hmm. kind of partner early. So you, you partnered yeah. early um, and then, you know, taking a home builder and bringing them into essentially commercial construction, but like within their certification. So like in Florida, you have two different kind of building contractors, but the home builder can build most garden style apartments that don't exceed, I'm not a builder. I think that don't exceed three stories. So, um, and of course they can build, you know, they can build a Walmart, anything single story they can build, but up, up to the three. So, and you did a mixed use right off the rip. Um, you know, then that's, even with my background, I'd be like, okay, now I got to be confident on retail leasing or office, whatever you're trying to put down on the ground floor. And then the multifamily projections are probably slightly easier, in my opinion, to nail down. Um, what made you go mixed use right off the bat? Well, he, um, Daniel, who is the building contractor, he had actually built retail in the past. Mm -hmm. And early on, we were able to secure Keller Williams as one of the tenants. And then we thought a gym was going to come in and they backed out, but we were able to replace it with another gym. Mm -hmm. So it actually gave us a lot of confidence to move forward because we knew we were going to have that. It was, they were both 10 year terms or 10 year leases. Um, so we had the, some stability where in the apartment lease up, this was back in 15 or 16, 
just talking and looking at market studies, we felt like we could lease it up, but we never had done it. We were, we had some nerves, but we knew if we had the triple net lease intact, we'd have some cash flow. So um, it, it, looking back on it, it was probably not the wisest decision um, or, or is more risky than I expected, but it played out to, yeah. to do well. And you touch on an interesting point. We haven't really had, I don't know if I've had just a traditional retail or commercial guy on. Um, I have to think back, but you know, if you're going to, if you're going to build commercial, you're probably not even going to get your commercial construction loan. If you don't have some signed, at least some LOIs, probably some signed leases, you know, at least a portion of it's ready to lease up. Um, it would be rare for someone to build unless they're just using their own money. It'd be rare for someone to build a strip center or an office retail like that without some tenants in tow. So I like that. Get some 10 year guys in there and, um, and build out your pro forma. Um, now you said you're doing some really, you know, you said 80, 250, there's some pretty big projects you're working on now. Can you kind of walk us through what, you, you know, some of the pros and cons, um, of new construction? I'd say most of the people that I interview, if they're doing apartment deals, they're not building. So, um, you know, you've been building early on. So kind of take us through why you like new construction. Uh, you've hit some tremendous upside. I was looking at your resume your, or your bio there, you know, great IRR. So kind of walk us through how you're able to achieve that and like why you like the new construction space. Right now, I think the new construction space is, has been phenomenal over the last five to 10 years. Um, I know more and more properties are coming to market. So the supply and demand characteristics are getting kind of out of whack, but we've always focused in secondary or tertiary markets where we aren't having to compete against JPI or Trammell Crow or some of these massive developers where we can go in, look at a market, do our analysis. Um, we've been able to get market studies then on all of our developments except one, um, just because that location was had so little data. Um, but we're able to go in, look at the supply demand characteristics, talk to the local community and really see if there's a need there. And in all the locations we've built, there has been a need and we've been able to lease up the properties relatively easy, to be honest with you. Um, and I'm not saying that's because of us, I think we're just exploiting an area that a lot of people won't look at. And um, I, I like it for the fact that we're buying the land since they are secondary and tertiary markets, we're buying it pretty cheap and we go through the entire entitlement process. We won't buy land that's been entitled. We feel like that takes away some of the competitive advantage. Um, it's more risky or time consuming to go through the entitlement process, but um, we hire attorneys in-house. We can do it. If we can't, we'll outsource it to the attorneys to provide some downside protection for us. Um, but we're building a brand new asset. We're getting typically a higher quality tenant base than maybe if you're buying a 1960s or 70s product. And I mean, now our price per door is 140 to 160, but before COVID, we're building significantly less than that. And in DFW, Austin, San Antonio, well, I haven't looked at acquisitions in a while, but two years ago, you couldn't buy anything below 180 a door. So we're building a brand new apartment, less maintenance, um, kind of everything you can think of for better price, better product, and 
we have had one of the downsides is finding somebody to manage it. But um, since they're large enough, we usually get a reputable third party manager in there. But in some of the markets, we've had to stretch and get um, kind of creative with how we've managed. Now on the just to keep going a little deeper on the new construction. So you said you like to buy land and create value through the entitlement process. Another way to say it is you'll buy it at a discount because it's not entitled for what you want to do. Right. So um, I'm familiar with entitlement. Um, actually sit on Jacksonville's planning commission, been doing that for four years. So um, when you do that, are you doing all your entitlement work while under contract as a contingency or are you closing on the land and then doing your entitlement work? We've done both. Um, ideally we would do it, while we're closing um but a few of the pieces of the land we had to buy because the seller wanted to sell before the nine 12 months or whatever it would be to get through the entitlement process um and from that we've created a land fund where the investors know that they have more risk or potentially more risk but the returns are higher as well so um Ideally, we would do it concurrently <laughs> with the mm -hmm. close, but some sellers want their money immediately. So it's not, it, our our vision doesn't always align with theirs. Okay. And you said you have a, a land fund. So you, when you uh, segregate your investors, you'll have people that came in to fund the land portion. And then maybe there's going to be like a, a construction to permanent loan component later. Is that, so those people are going to have, better upside to ride the risk correct um and we've had different iterations over time um initially we were taking down land with the same capital we were raising for the vertical construction um and then we started to realize the hold times got significantly longer so then we were taking it down with our money um and then we had different investors asking for another product. So we basically created a land or a debt fund to be able to take down the land, go through the entitlement and the zoning process, then we'll sell it off. Um, typically, well, on the single family side, we'll either build or sell off to our home builder network or on the multifamily side, we'll always buy it and build ourselves. Um, so we've added some security for the investors that there's going to be somebody to take the land once it's through the entitlement process. And on the, on the construction side, and I completely understand, I mean, these land contracts, if you're doing your entitlements before you close, they could run a year They and they routinely yeah. do. Um, I've been involved in those kind of deals. So what about, let's say you close on land and you have your entitlements. What's your typical um, build time to CO? Um, usually about 18 to 24 months. Um, we've done it faster in some situations during COVID. It was longer. Um, mm -hmm. like during COVID, we waited five months to get windows, but I, th I think the fastest time was we were building outside a city. So we were just dealing with the County and we went from construction to starting to lease in like 11 to 12 months. Wow. But, um, typically it's probably 18 to 24. Mm -hmm. And then on the, um, what are you seeing? I know times are rapidly changing, but um, on the debt terms, I I'm just going to say general things. Like you'll hear yeah. people say, 
oh, we're going to have to have a big KP or a big, a big personal guarantee in the capital stack to get that construction loan. You might be able to refi out with something, a non-recourse product. Um, what can you say about that? It's definitely changed. We, and even for ourselves, it's changed over time. Like the first few construction loans we had were recourse no matter what, but they were probably 5%. Um, and then now we're getting construction loans and they were 70% LTC. Now we're getting construction loans, probably seven to 8% non-recourse. And we like the last one, we got, we thought we were going to be able to get 70 to 75%. The bank retraded us and we're now at like 62 and a half percent. So um, they're, they're definitely getting more conservative. Um, I, I don't see that changing, but I, I still feel like with the speed that we build at, the price that we build at, it makes sense to build. And then once we get stabilized, we can refi into agency debt or long-term debt um, mm -hmm. to for the long, the, to hold the project. And um, with that kind of capital stack discussion, so, uh, you know, 62, 62.5%, that's a pretty low loan to value. So if you're doing, you know, 140 a door type construction, keep the math easy, you're doing, say, a $14 million, 100 unit project. Um, you know, that's a lot of, that's a lot of equity to raise potentially. Is that something now I, I kind of have an answer in my mind, but I'm curious what you think. Is that something that's more attractive to um, certain types of investors or family offices or institutions? Because those are they would take a long time to get there at, you know, $50,000 clips. Yeah, um, we've yet to go the family office or institutional route. That's one thing. Long term goal is to get a family office or institutional investor. But luckily, we've had a lot of high net worth individuals through business relationships, through friends that have, have invested with us. Um, I haven't looked at it recently, but on average, we have that the average investor is a little over a hundred thousand. So we do have quite a few people. And one of the goals initially was to make as many millionaires as possible. And then I started to realize they're already millionaires, but it's, <laughs> um, or, or on the brink of it. So it's just a great way to help them diversify and create whatever dreams or goals they have for their family. And so like in that hypothetical, you know, hundred unit, $14 million deal. And let's say, let's say you got to come up with, you know, five, $6 million. You'll go ahead and do that. You know, a hundred thousand dollars at a time. Yeah. Um, one of our properties we we had to raise 5.3 million and out of that we had 35 investors so some i mean some were at the 50 to 100,000 mark mm -hmm. one of them was at a million so it just kind of varied in between yeah. um but and typically go ahead sorry 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 typically they most of them invest the minimum. So over time, we've also raised the minimum just to reduce the investor count because we do want to help the investors, but it's much easier to manage 30 investors versus 100 investors. Oh, certainly. Certainly. You tend to do uh, like 506Cs or what's your, is that your- We've done both. Um, well, we've done even JVs, but we've done 506Bs and Cs. We're starting to gravitate more towards the C um, just- to reduce our liability of potentially lawsuit or just reduce our liability in general. 
gives you a you know exposure and marketing edge. Um, exactly. We just I told you before the show we just closed a five hundred six C raise, and um, I think the clunkiest part about it was probably probably the third party accreditation. You know, so because if they can self certify or self affidavit their their position, that's that's fast. It's on them. They've done it. Um, but getting getting like their CPA, their attorney, or you know like parallel parallel markets or one of these different third party accreditation sites, you'll have somebody that's ready to go. And then they're like, Oh, I've never had to do this before. And I won't say that they're offended by it, but it, it can create a couple business day delay. It could, it could lower enthusiasm. You know, it doesn't take a lot to kind of kill the honeymoon effect of a new deal. So that was probably, that's probably one thing um, that I noticed. It was nice to be able to put a deal out with disclaimers and not worry about, you know, am I advertising a deal that I'm not allowed to advertise? So that was, that was one thing. Yeah. The first time we did 506C, we had a couple of our larger investors not participate. And it was just because it's an extra hurdle and an extra step. And if you're a W2 employee or you have a few investments, it's pretty easy to self-accreditate or go through a verification process. But if you have businesses or real estate, it is it is tougher. Um, and some people don't want to deal with that. So we've been able to convince most people to invest in 506 C's and get accredited through their CPA or attorney or mm -hmm. something like that. But that is one concern with going 506 C. Yeah. And for those that are listening, and this all sounds like Greek gibberish, um, to be an accredited investor, which is what a lot, if you, if you guys are on Instagram or any social stuff or you're getting stuff on LinkedIn, if you're seeing it through a social or an e-blast, it's probably an offering for accredited investors only. And that would be a 506C offering. And the accreditation standard requires a third-party verification letter. It can be from a CPA, it can be from an attorney, or you can do these third-party services. But one of the ways you can be accredited is to have a million-dollar net worth without your primary residence. So I think what Sam and I are getting at is like some people have a high net worth, but they don't, they don't have a traditional work anymore. You know, and some, that was the whole point. They got high net worth. They're in some passive investments and they don't, they don't have a job. They don't have a W2. And um, then those people might take a little longer to get their accreditation letter versus if somebody's like um tech job or surgeon or, you know, they just, and they're clipping along at $200,000 or more a year single, they can just load a couple of W-2s in one of these softwares. You'll have a letter in like five minutes. Um, well, maybe not five minutes, but very quickly. So it's good to know, you know, what your investor profile is. And, and if you are like a higher net worth individual that no longer has like active income, you know, you might need to, you might need to give yourself time to get that letter so you don't miss out. All right. I think I want to jump into a sample deal with Sam here. So I like that you've been doing, um, I like that you've been doing a little bit of a diverse mix of investments. What do you want to, what do you want to talk about? Let's, let's do a little dive here. We typically break it down into a uh, coach's case study is find it, fund it, fix it, exit, and a lesson. I can repeat all that, but find it, fund it, fix it, which for you might just be build it and, and an exit and a lesson. So uh, what do you want to dive into, Sam? Since I mentioned the mixed use deal, we can discuss that. Um, we exited the commercial side years ago when we we're about to exit the apartment. So I think it would be relevant right now. Yeah. So how'd you, how'd you find this bad boy? 
Um, it kind of, it, it came through my partner's relationship actually with Keller Williams. Um, he had built a, a development forum in a town 30, 45 minutes east of where we built. So they asked if they could get an office and if they could find the land, if he'd build it. So it happened to just kind of work out and there was extra space. He didn't know how to raise funds for an apartment. So it, it made it aligned perfectly for what we were looking at to do. Mm -hmm. All right. So you buy, did it need to be entitled? Uh, yes, it did. Okay. Um, it was just a raw piece of land behind. It was right off the main uh, strip in the city and then it was behind a golf course. So it's almost a perfect location for what we were needing. And remind me what market? It's Kerrville, Texas, which is like 60, 65 minutes south or northwest of San Antonio. Okay. I'm not going to pretend to know Texas well, but <laughs> I do know where San Antonio is. All right. Uh, how do you, how'd you fund it? We, this was a lot of bootstrapping and reaching out to everybody in our Rolodex. It was one of the smallest raises we ever did. And it was about the hardest. <laughs> um, we had to raise basically 2.3 million. And I don't know how many phone calls we had where we were told yes. And then when we sent out the PPM, they said, no, come back. Um, but luckily we just had a big enough network of investors that we finally got enough yeses to fund it. Wonderful. And for those that haven't done what Sam just described, <laughs> uh, what's the expression? If you want to check your ego, go out and raise capital. <laughs> yeah, um, it will it will humble you in a heartbeat. Um, and just to, for a caveat, before that, everybody was like, money will come if you have a good deal. <laughs> and that's not always the case. If you have a track record, it helps out a lot. I totally we're I know we're in the middle of your breakdown, but we that's, that's a very good point. So it is easier. It is more difficult to raise money for a killer deal outside of what you typically do with a track record than it is to raise money for, I won't say like a dead dog loser, but a very mediocre deal. Um, if you've done it 10 times, same market, here's my case study, case study, case study, case study. Um, that, that deal is going to be a lot easier to raise for, even though the investors would make more money, um, maybe in a different offering. But if they, the other thing is if they don't know Ian or Sam, uh, good luck. You're probably the first conversation is probably just to get to know you and maybe you get them on the second or third deal. Some will jump right in, but, um, also be prepared for people that, you know, really well that have money and don't want to do your deal. Um, and maybe, uh, that, that sometimes was more of a stinger where it's like, okay, this person's known me like my entire real estate career. Um, they know, I know my stuff. I know they have money. I know they're accredited and they don't even want to do the minimum. And, uh, you, you know, you just, that's, that's the part that wears on your ego a little bit, but it's, it's a humbling process and it's, but it's worth it in the end. So, all right. So that's how you funded it. You bootstrapped it. And now the, uh, the construction, did you bootstrap, did you fund the construction out of the, um, well, and money? I, I guess part of the funding, we also got a, two construction loans for the retail and the multifamily. So, um, and at that time, like I was saying, the rates were probably five to six, um, and we're getting seventy percent LTUC. Um, so they were the bank was our largest partner. Yeah, but um, we we self 
performed on the GC side. Um, we of course hired some people, some subs and um, people down in that area, but we oversaw the construction. Wonderful. Um, now, do we have an exit? What do we do with this one? Um, on the retail side, we exit literally a year and a day after we built it. Um, we had an offer from a guy who met our seven year projections, so we couldn't turn it down. Um, but we wanted to keep the multifamily. We believed in that market. We knew it was supply constrained. Um, so we opened the apartment and we've held it this entire time. We actually just signed a PSA yesterday to sell it in June. So we've operated for six or seven years. It's been a great asset. Um, definitely learned some lessons. We had to fire a couple of property managers <laughs> in the in the process, but um, overall is a great, great way to get into the business and grow and learn from it. Um, and luckily we've been able to provide a fantastic return to our investors and with the sell to multifamily will more than well, roughly triple their initial investment in the multifamily side. So we're excited about that. Wonderful. Congratulations. Well, you'll have to, you have to drop me a line when that thing closes and over the summer. Um, biggest lesson on that deal, biggest takeaway, biggest lesson. I think the biggest lesson was um, going back to vetting people. Like we hired a property manager out of um, San Antonio. We thought that we could trust him. Um, and we found out she was basically embezzling from us. Mm. Um, and it was before we even leased up like we we're going to give her a bonus and some other things for the lease up. And she just decided to take it without telling us before the services were rendered. Um, so I, during the limited partner experience, during that experience, learned a lot about trust, but verify. Mm -hmm. And I think learning people's character is so much more important than their track record. And even if they've been in business 10, 20, 30 years, you still need to have in-depth conversations to figure out who they truly are and what makes them tick. Could not agree more. And I think on the, just on the, there's the human side and the real estate side, but you know, they overlap so much. And to your point, they overlap a lot in the management. Um, so I only have one, one larger apartment at the moment. It's in Valdosta, Georgia. It's an 83 unit that I own with a partner. We did not syndicate. It's just, just the two of us. And it's been a golden goose. I love that property, but Honestly, and I and my property manager is good, but I swear to you, it's like the only property manager. So uh, <laughs> don't get me wrong. I could find like some company that manages single family, but we, we both know it's different managing an apartment yeah. than single family. And I'm like, you know, it, I won't say it keeps me up anymore because we've had the property over five years and it's just a consistent producer. But I mean, and she might be listening now, but if we, if we lost our property manager over there, we would really be up a Creek and we're in, and my partner, Ray and I, we're not in a, I don't want to run that thing. I don't, I'm, I'm not, I'm not going over there to manage that apartment. So uh, to your point, when you're in these tertiary markets where there might only be, you know, a couple good contractors, especially within certain trades um, and not to mention property managers, I think that's where having a team, having a track record, you've done this dance and you can show it. That's where you kind of get over the human element hurdle that a lot of people don't expect. Like, well, this tertiary market, the land is 
20 cents on the dollar and the rents aren't that far off, you know, this nearby big city and we're all going to do great. But you realize there's only going to be a few players in that market and you got to work with them. Yeah. Even especially in secondary or tertiary markets, but just in general, like one thing I've talked to with my partners and with other investors is, and we've used companies in the past where in one location, they crush it. And it's because of the on-site manager. And then in some locations we've had to fire them. And it's um, kind of mind blowing where you pay an on-site property manager, 50, 60, $70,000 when they're expected to run a multi-million dollar property and business. And they can definitely make and make or break the investment. Mm -hmm. I won't, I won't belabor the point. I, I remember for about a year and a half, we were convinced we were going to get an on-site maintenance man. We're going to do the good old fashioned, give him a, uh, a modest studio for free and, and then give him a stipend or a salary to do uh, work orders. And we went through three gentlemen and um, it never worked out. And I know some people, they, they do great with, with, you know, on-site maintenance guys and the property was almost too small to support that, but we were getting a little bit buried in uh, vendors. So I was like, okay, if we can get a maintenance man, live on site, give him, give him a, a reasonable stipend or salary plus a free unit. Never, you know, it's the human side we're talking about, never can make that click. So um, anyways, it's just another anecdote about trying, you know, the investment is very, it, it, it hinges on a human component often. It definitely does. All right. Well, now I'm, I do this little section, the, the coach's resource breakdown. So just to, you know, first thing that comes to mind, what, what's one of your, what's one of your favorite or top couple business or real estate books? Um, I, I think lately my favorite business book is who not how, and I've, I didn't realize this until the last few years, but I've always been a control freak <laughs> and given up that power is important to help grow and scale. And like now we have 50 plus employees and I want to make sure that I'm putting the right person in place to do the job and empowering to have them be as successful as possible. Um, and then another business book, I feel like I read a ton, so it's kind of hard to narrow it down, but um, maybe I'll say Rich Dad, Poor Dad, just because that's what I read back in 2006 or so and sparked mm -hmm. my sparked my mind in real estate investing and what passive income was. Yeah, the purple book. Um, <laughs> I know. And like, it's made such a bit. I think there's no shame in saying that. I mean, it was, I read it too. And I liked, I read Cashflow Quadrant right behind that one. And they're very, very similar books. But um, I was self-employed when I read it, just doing title and escrow um with my law degree and I was like oh I'm an S and I'm a long ways from being a B <laughs> or an I uh, I'm a lonely S and uh, anyways now that book was it's simple and he, he I think Kiyosaki's gift is like simplicity of communication but that's a great one yeah. um other than this awesome show what kind of uh what are your favorite podcasts that you listen to um for years I listened to Whitney Sewell um he he does the apartment syndication show and it's every day and I felt like he had some great guests on um but over time you hear the same stuff repeated I feel like so now if I listen to podcasts it's more on self-development or Joe Rogan or things like that but mm -hmm. um 
I, I listened to, I don't know, 300 plus episodes of Bigger Pockets, probably. Uh, yeah. So kind of the common, the, the common theme podcasts that everybody listens to. Yeah, I think it's, um, it can be a lonely journey as an entrepreneur. Now you have 50 employees. Congratulations. I'm doing a little golf clap. Thank you. Um, but you didn't when you started and you have family members saying, whoa, maybe don't leave that W2. So I think, yeah. you know, I think by having, for some reason, YouTube's low on my list, but I know a lot of people get a ton out of YouTube. Um, I just get like distracted on YouTube. I'm too ADD, but um, anchoring into a few podcasts and a couple and some thought leaders and some influencers that are actually doing things, not just, not just making sizzling reels um, can take you a long ways as much in the mindset as anything else, because the way that they did it is probably not going to be exactly how you do it, but humans were really good at modeling. And, um, and if you can find someone that, you know, maybe has your personality profile and is doing things that you want to do, modeling their behavior can be a great jump start. Um, and those podcasts, like your 300 episodes of bigger pockets back in the day, I mean, you don't feel alone. You know, you listen to these yeah. interviews like this and you're like, I'm not all by myself, even though I'm literally alone working at home, wondering you, if I'm ever going to make it. You do definitely feel like you're on an island and that connection or even listen to sports radio or something. Yeah. I've felt connected to them. But um, now I, I completely agree. I, I'm starting to listen to more overall like business and I'll listen to Ray Dalio a lot or Patrick Lencioni on leadership, um, John Maxwell people that are maybe outside of real estate investing to just help grow the business to bigger heights. Yeah. I did a, a John Maxwell audio book this year. Um, whatever is, whatever his big one is. Anyways, that was, that was really good. I like that a lot. Um, I don't have a big organization, so it's kind of like, give me tips on how to maybe make my family do stuff, <laughs> but, uh, but no, you know, it's, it's good to have goals like that. And then, um, when you're not, you know, when you're not self-educating and developing your personal traits and building your portfolio, what are you into for fun? Um, I love being outside. I, I wish I could ski, mount, uh, snow ski every day, but that's impossible. So I've started to pick up golf um, and just, I initially picked it up for business, but I've learned I enjoy it, even though it's the most frustrating sport I've ever played. Mm -hmm. um, and then giving back to certain organizations and charities that I've been a part of for now decades is near and dear to my heart. I do find that finding something outside of yourself, because it depends on your personality, but a lot of people will only do so much for like for themselves, for their own development. But if you attach it to a cause, family member, something bigger than you, some people are really into their church or whatever they're into. The minute you make it bigger than yourself, you can really empty the tank and, and get after it. Um, okay. Now last, where can people find you, connect with you, learn more, maybe invest with you, get into your world. You can go to basecapitalgroup.com slash invest or find me on social media. I'm on Facebook and LinkedIn. I don't necessarily always go there, but I can, you can reach out that way as well. Wonderful. All right, Sam, Sam Bates, everybody. This has been a great one. Um, if you enjoyed the episode, share it with a friend. Give us a little subscribe. Help us grow. We really appreciate it. And as always, this is Coach Brown signing off on this Yield Coach show, reminding you to lace up and leave it all on the field. Yield Coach out. <laughs>